0: horticulture update for Friday July 24th. And let's do our county check-in. How about counties A through D? Dane's here. is here. Hi, VJ. Anybody else? Okay, how about E through L? Kenosha, good morning, Lisa. Hi there. All right, M through P.
1: Walton Portage County. Hello. This is Pierce County.
0: Hi, Pierce. Anybody else? Okay. R through W. Anne is Kristen from Waukesha County. Hi.
2: Hi. Kim from Winnebago.
3: Winnebago. Morning. Christy's here from Walmart. Hello. Okay. Anybody
0: I missed earlier? Okay. And let's move on to the county reports then. I'll start out, usual stuff in Dane County, Japanese beetles, although we haven't had nearly as many calls about those. Number of weed ID, plant ID types of questions, questions on straw bale gardening. Number of emerald ash borer and tree-related questions. So that's about what I got here. Okay, DJ or Kenosha, one of you two want to continue with county reports?
4: Sure, Lisa. It's been pretty dry here. We desperately need some rain. People are noticing a lot of blossom end rot on the first set of tomato fruits. And I'll say, due to the high hot temperature, people are noticing some flower drops on their beans and some pepper plants. A few questions related to Japanese beetles. Their populations are not that high here compared to the last several years. But still, we're getting some calls regarding the Japanese beetle on the west side of Green Bay. Few questions related to sudden dieback of branches and wilting of branches in Catalpa and Japanese tree lilac. Suspicious for verticillin and wilt on those things and we sent the sample to Brian for testing. And people are noticing pH issues on red maples and pin oak trees. And yesterday we got a client who stopped in here with an emerald ash borer larvae collected from the city of Green Bay area in his private ash tree. So that was exciting to see that. And that's pretty much about it.
5: This is Barb in Kenosha. This summer, we've had more questions on scale insects on outdoor plants than I think I've ever had samples come in, and I'm not sure whether it's just they're more noticeable or it's more of a complication because they've been stressed for the couple of winters or what's going on with it, but, and then sooty mold. so high-scale populations, and then we get sooty mold with them. The other kind of interesting one that we've had a couple of calls on have been stalk bores in lilies, lilium, so Asiatic lilies mostly, and just to get two calls on that, and it's pretty obvious that that's what's going on. They're actually finding the larva in the stalks. It has been kind of interesting and different in it. I would say otherwise it would be kind of the typical midsummer kinds of things. Yes, it's now drying out. It's getting hotter, so getting more issues with a little more wilting. And then some of those where we had some root rot from the wet conditions, now the plants are collapsing as it's getting drier. So kind of an interesting combination of different things. So thank you.
3: Anybody else? Christy from Rock County just checked in. I have still tree and tree decline questions, some related to emerald ash borer, some not. And then the tomatoes have spots on them, but it doesn't seem like anything detrimental to the tomatoes I've been seeing, which is really kind of nice. We have dried down. We haven't gotten any rain since the last time, which is fine, though, because I haven't needed to water anything, though, except my container's. It's okay, but otherwise, it's been a really quiet week for me down here. And this is Chrissy. I'll just fill in the gaps between Kenosha and Rock County, if that's okay. Blooming, typical midsummer things, purple coneflower, black-eyed Susans, like Barb. I've had two calls on magnolia scale, and I've also seen scale just outside on a redbud. Emerald ash farm getting a lot of calls about what to do, how to treat, that sort of thing. I've had two calls on chlorosis on oaks. Tomatoes, people are saying they're just not getting their tomatoes. There's blossoms, but there's no tomatoes. A lot of people are having septoria and early blight issues. So, Vijay, it was interesting because you're saying you guys have tomatoes, but down here, I don't know. There's just been a lot of people concerned about their tomatoes, probably because of the weather maybe. And then the other thing is I have not seen one Japanese beetle yet this year as I'm out and about, so that's been pretty interesting down here. I know they're out, but I just haven't actually seen one, so that's just something I've noticed. And that's it for in-between
6: This is Kristen. I'll just go next since we seem to be doing the southern part. If you'd like to see Japanese beetles, I can give you some raspberry plants because I've gotten to the point where picking the Japanese beetles off my raspberries and killing them is actually more gratifying than the raspberries themselves. And the other thing, we've had tomatoes down here on our farm. We've had them for four weeks, so I'm not sure what's going on, but we're not too far from Walworth County, We have plenty of bacterial problems and all sorts of crazy stuff going on with crops just because we had all that humid and wet weather. And the other thing I'll mention is invasive weeds are just gangbusters. We've been getting tons of calls about both parsnip and hogweed, and then crown vetch is going crazy. There's lots of stuff growing really, really well, and most of it here is weeds.
3: Yeah, this is Chrissy again. I'm just thinking the tomatoes are people that planted them later on in the year or something that I'm getting the calls from, but... I was at the farmer's market yesterday too and I was looking for tomatoes and I didn't see any there either. I don't know. Just something I've noticed.
6: We got our corn late. So I know it must be cooler this year because we just got corn this week and usually we have it a lot closer to the 4th of July. So I agree with you. I don't think the degree days are quite there. But I don't know. And it depends when you planted them. We always have ours in the ground almost when it thaws.
0: I noticed, looking at the Wisconsin Pest Bulletin, that Madison is about 130-degree days behind last year, which is yet another 100-degree days behind what is, quote, normal. Anybody else for a county report?
7: Well, if you want to jump all the way up north, this is Kevin.
0: Let's go for it.
7: Okay. Well... VJ, we had a beautiful thunderstorm go through this morning, so we got another very timely rain for us up here, which has been perfect for just about all of our crops, including our market gardeners. I was just talking to somebody yesterday, said, boy, if we could get another shot of rain, we'd sure be set for the rest of the season, at least on their corn and beans, and that's exactly what we got last night. So, at any rate, because of the moisture and the higher humidities that come with that, we've been seeing a lot more calls, and I've been out looking at a few plants the disease is on tomatoes and peppers. is septoria, some bacterial spot. I did send a sample down to Brian that was suspect. Late blight, but I kind of doubt that. So again, the fungus are among us up here because of the weather patterns we've been having. Aphids, the cabbage loopers, all the other seasonal stuff that we usually see in gardens this time is coming in. In follow-up to last week's spotted wing drosophila, I've been spending some time working with some local pick-your-own Small commercial fruit growers, mostly blueberry, and I don't know if it's because of that, but it seems like everybody's paying attention to their crops, and we're getting calls even from backyard growers now on SWD. I'm not sure if folks downstate have gotten a lot of calls from homeowners on that yet, but it's pretty frustrating because for years and years we've got to enjoy our raspberries, and now we got this new pest. So we we'll continue to try to get information out on that and help people through this. Other than that, the tree questions still pop up, Uh, apple tree decline is still on some people's minds, storm damage stuff on trees. So I guess it's been pretty typical, nothing unusual, but our weather has been surprisingly normal, if you want to say that. Other than heat units, like Lisa mentioned, at Spooner Research Station, we're about 200-degree days behind normal whatever that is, but crops are looking good, and if we have a normal fall, we should finish out the season fairly well up here. So I guess a little bit of a change from what we've seen in the past. That's it.
1: This this is Walt in Portage County. I'm going to echo what Chrissy said in Rock County. haven't seen a single Japanese beetle yet this summer. Still getting a number of tree decline issues, and just sent some samples to Brian for ID, probably a purple-bordered leaf spot on a maple tree. Biggest issue this week is spotted wing drosophila. It's been confirmed here in Portage County. I've had at least three weeks where on a home grower, he's got a nice bunch of blueberries, but we found the fruit fly there and another sample that I've got in the freezer right now of some fruit flies that I grew out, and I'm going to send those in next week and make sure that they're the actual culprit. But doing a lot of talking to folks about the drosophila and getting more info out to the farmer's market, and pretty busy with that this week.
8: This is Diana in Pierce County, and I'll echo what Kevin said. Sorry, BJ, but we seem to be sucking all the rain out of the air before it gets over to your part of the state because we got a good half inch last night. We don't seem to be able to go more than five days without rain, and that's causing us a lot of problems with fungal things. We've got a lot of yellowing plants. We've got root rots going on. Insects are happy, and the weeds are crazy, and I've never seen so much wild parsnip, and like Kristen said, the hogweed... That family seems to be just really, really enjoying all of this rain we've had. Brian, I thought of you the other day. I saw a hawthorn that looked like a Christmas tree. It was just coated with rust spots on it. It was the brightest hawthorn rust I've ever seen and pretty cool. And we also have Drosophila popping up. I think I had three calls on my voicemail this morning about it. So it's here again It's a game changer. I know a couple of growers that actually just mowed their raspberries off this year because they just don't want to deal with it, and so it's really a shame that way. And that's probably about it. I think we're a little behind, too, as far as degree days and maturity of things goes, but there's a lot of summer left, so hopefully we'll get those tomatoes in yet.
7: Diane, I would echo the wild parsnips, cow parsnips, all those carrot family weeds. I just put a press release into our papers at the request of somebody because they think nobody knows about this stuff and we got to help them understand. So lots of parsnip popping up that we never had. And that's another new plant we're seeing, roadsides, pastures, those kinds of things. So at any rate, just another one of those teachable moments.
3: Yeah, in Rock County, I've seen a ton of wild parsnip compared to previous years as well.
0: Any other county reports before we go to the specialist reports?
2: This is Tim in Winnebago. I have to echo a lot of what VJ was saying. We really could use a lot of rain here. We were dry for a long time, and I think it was July 4th weekend we finally got some, which I think pulled a lot of corn through. Without that, I would have hated to see some of those crops. But even now, it's very dry again. A lot of the calls here have been across the board. We have a lot of insect IDs, weed IDs. People are starting to wonder what's wrong with their vegetables. We've had some problems with beans and tomatoes and so forth. Still getting calls about trees and decline, what's wrong with them. And now we're starting to get some calls about their apple trees and what's wrong with the apple fruit. So a little bit across the board, and I have to echo the invasives. They are everywhere, and crowned vetch is very popular in this area this year. That's it.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to the specialist reports then.
9: Okay, this is Brian. Let me talk about the clinic reports. Definitely a busy week in the clinic. Lots of things going on on woody ornamentals, vascular wilts, both vert on catalpa and also some oak wilt that we've confirmed. Leaf diseases are picking up because of the moisture and trachnose tubacchia leaf spot on oaks and trachnose and a variety of other types of plants as well, including sycamore A few problems with some chlorosis, not only on maples, but we had a hydrangea sample that came in that was showing some pretty classic symptoms. A little bit of growth regulator herbicide injury as well. And then in terms of fruit crops, saw a fair amount of cedar apple rust. We have hawthorns on campus that are showing great symptoms. Commercial apple sample that came in that had some, actually I believe it was a homeowner sample instead of a commercial sample. First fire blight confirmation of the year, been seeing a lot of branch dieback, but not been able to confirm that until a sample came in from Oneida County. We have also been seeing leaf diseases on fruit trees. Cherry leaf spot came in this week, which causes very small necrotic spots on cherry leaves. It can't get bad enough that the trees will defoliate. Also, some angular leaf spot on strawberry. That's an easy one to diagnose if you'd like to try it sometime. Most strawberries get at least some of this particular disease. It's a bacterial disease, and you can diagnose it by holding the leaves up to the light. And if you see small, angular yellow spots on the leaves, that's angular leaf spot. Again, easy to diagnose. And then kind of an interesting fruit crop, honeyberry, which I had not encountered before, a lunicera species. And that one came in with pretty severe powdery mildew, which once I figured out what genus it was in, it didn't surprise me because luniceras, in general, tend to have issues with powdery mildews to the point that they will defoliate. In terms of ornamentals, leaf streak on daylily, a Hoster virus X sample that came in from Milwaukee County, and then some chlorosis on a peony as well. I see that relatively commonly too. And then on vegetable crops, just a ton of stuff going on. Tomatoes, just a lot of viruses. Tobacco mosaic, cucumber mosaic, and tomato spotted wilt were the big ones. We did see some Satoria leaf spots, and then a sample where the fruits were cat so that's been occurring as well. And then we had an onion sample, a couple of them that came in, one with downy mildew, which can be of concern that can cause a lot of damage relatively quickly. And then a disease called purple blotch, which is an alternaria disease that causes these big purple necrotic areas on the leaves, It's quite distinctive visually, and then just a lot of dieback with another little fungus called stempillium It can cause a fair amount of damage. So... That's kind of a quick summary for what's been going on with me. Any questions real quick?
5: Brian, by any chance, off the top of your head, do you remember the basal sample that came from the Kenosha demonstration garden? Yeah,
9: I did send a report back for you on that one. We checked it for downy mildew, did not find anything, didn't find any other diseases as well. We did check it for virus and nothing of that sort. So it looks like some sort of non-disease issue causing the purpling on that foliage. We did have a sample earlier in the season that was from a commercial setting where we thought there had been a little bit of phytotoxicity from a spray treatment, but I doubt that that's probably what you're dealing with in your situation. Well,
5: Uh, it could be. (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah, and they seem to be growing out of it, so. Okay.
9: It looked like classic symptoms with that purpling foliage, but usually when you see that, and if it's downy mildew, you flip it over and it's sporulating on the backside, and it wasn't when it arrived and we incubated it for several days, didn't see any sporulation. And then just to make sure, because we've been seeing so many viruses, we definitely have been testing for virus. The other interesting virus sample that came in that I forgot to mention was we had a hibiscus that came in. It was from a commercial producer, And as he was talking to me, he mentioned that he had, I believe, thousands of plants that were showing symptoms, and it was cucumber mosaic virus. And so he was going to have to pitch all of those plants.
5: Okay, thank you. We couldn't find any sporulation either. Yeah, you
9: would have seen it. That one is one that's relatively easy to diagnose in-house. But again, if you have any concerns or questions, send me a sample. We do those for free. Okay, thank you. I do have a summary from PJ if we're done with questions for me. Any other questions for me? Okay, here's TJ's summary for the week. He said, spotted wing drosophila, same team as last week. It's been popping up in several locations throughout the state and definitely time to monitor your berry patches. Japanese beetles are present in a number greater than last year and are causing some damage, but he hasn't seen any reports of significant damage, such as completely defoliated linden or birch trees. The gypsy moth adults are now out, and he's had reports of males appearing at lights at night but also flying to females on trees. He comments that the females are unable to fly. Beige fuzzy egg masses can be scraped off trees, picnic tables, and other sites in the coming months and destroyed before they hatch in the spring. In terms of Viburnum leaf beetle, Marsha Winsink from Datcap had him look at a Viburnum sample from a plant in the Menominee Falls area of Waukesha County. There were two odd ova-positioned egg-laying pits on the twig and oblong holes on the leaves. This is the first report of that insect from Waukesha County. Larvae of the species are done for the year, but the greenish-yellowish adults should be out by now and can also damage leaves. A few other things that he said you might see popping up. Bark lice, which are unusual insects. The juveniles often have black and white or black and yellow stripes on their bodies, and can congregate on the trunks of trees. They feed on lichens on the trees, but can look alarming. Wasps and yellow jackets will start picking up an activity in the coming weeks as their colonies are growing in size. And he's lately been getting one to two calls per day about magnolia scale. There is a fact sheet on that. It's available on the HORT website, also on my clinic website. For control, timing is critical, and the vulnerable juveniles are out and active in late August and early September. That's all I have.
0: Okay, so any other specialists present? All right, well then let's go on to today's special guest, Christy Stewart.
10: So I want to start out talking about a recent update. So there's research that came out this past month regarding bumblebee's ranges that got a lot of media attention. And they found that bumblebee's southernmost range limits were being pushed farther north and that this is due to climate change. However, their northernmost range is not expanding further north, and that's suspected to be due potentially to unsuitable vegetation further north. So what's happening is that their range is actually being constricted. And that's bad news for bumblebees who are already seeing some species declining precipitously, suspected to be due to diseases and pesticides. In Wisconsin, we've historically had 20 species, and I say historically because Several of those species haven't been seen in recent years. They may or may not still be found in Wisconsin. And so these research findings have some potential impact here in Wisconsin because many of our bumblebees are either at their northernmost range, reaching up to southern or central Wisconsin, or they're at their southernmost range, coming down to northern or central Wisconsin. And so what we might see happen is that bees in southern Wisconsin won't extend their range upwards into northern Wisconsin as it starts warming up. And the bees in northern Wisconsin that are at their southernmost limit may get pushed out of that range and start disappearing from Wisconsin. And that's kind of the end of my little update on the research there. Because a lot of people want to know what kind of flowering plants they can grow to help support bees, I want to start out talking about native plants versus non-native and cultivars versus non-cultivars. So there have been several research studies on native versus non-native, and they found that our native bees show a preference for native plants. These results have been expected because, of course, they've been evolving together for many, many years. Because of this general preference, and also I like to encourage the use of natives for additional reasons, my focus is more on native plants, and that's also what I spend a lot of time looking at pollinators on. Of course, there's a lot of non-natives that are good, and I'll mention some of those as well. And cultivars versus non-cultivars. Cultivars are often selected for prettiness to humans or other things. So sometimes in the selection, it decreases or eliminates the pollen or nectar. For example, double-flowered cultivars generally have stamens converted to petals, so they usually lack pollen, and also the access to nectar can be impeded by the excess petals. So they often don't provide anything for pollinators. Selection in cultivars can also affect visual attractors for bees. So some color changes may be less attractive or not attractive at all to bees. And sometimes the selection can affect the nectar guides that lead the bees to the nectar. And recently there's been kind of a movement towards functional gardens. So instead of focusing solely on prettiness, we focus on prettiness and functionality, which provides a useful purpose so food for people and their wildlife and habitat for wildlife. So when thinking about providing plants for bees, you want to provide plants that will flower from very early spring until late fall. So some bees are only out for a short period of time. They might only be out early in the spring or late in the fall. And then others, social bees in particular, will cover that entire range. So for example, bubble bees in the early spring, queens have hibernated over the winter. So early spring, as soon as it starts warming up, they come out and start looking for food. So the ones that come out very early spring, their colony might end in the summer or late summer, but different species come out at different times, and even within a species, there's a range of times that they come out. So some of them that come out later, their colony will last all the way to the end of the fall. And at the end of the fall, new queens that have been produced go out, feed, feed, and they need to get up enough food to really build up their fat reserves to hibernate over the winter. People kind of think more about the main flowering time, but it's really important to get that whole range, including the early spring and into the late fall. Now you want to plant any given species in a good-sized patch, a minimum of suggested about 4 feet by 4 feet, and you want to have at least a few species of plants blooming at any time. So different plants can be attracted to different species of bees. Often this is dependent on their tongue length. So having a diversity flowering at any given time is going to give you a bigger diversity of bee species. And people want to avoid the use of insecticides or other pesticides. They don't want to be attracting the bees only then to kill them off with the pesticides. You can use alternative methods of pest removal, like pulling them off by hand and putting them in a bucket of soapy water or row covers. If people feel like they have to apply pesticides, they can apply when the plants aren't flowering or in the evening, but even these things aren't ideal because if you're spraying when the plants aren't flowering, well, we've got a lot of species of bees that are called leaf cutter bees. They're very abundant here in Wisconsin, and what they do is the female goes out and collects leaf pieces and then builds her nest, these little cells in her nest, out of those leaf pieces. So she's constantly going, collecting leaf pieces, carrying them right under her body, and then she's laying her eggs in those and then closes them off with more leaf pieces. And so those eggs and developing larvae and pupae are completely surrounded by those leaf pieces. And then also praying in the evening, well, early evening is actually really a heavy time for bumblebee foraging, so the best thing is to just not spray at all. So then I wanted to go over some plants that are particularly good. So these are listed on the extension sheet, D4001, supporting native bees, are essential pollinators. And they're on page two. So I'll just quickly go through these. Pussy willow. That one is especially important as an early spring pollen source. It's great to get the males of those plants, so particularly for early spring bees, including the bumblebee queens that have come out. There's not a lot out flowering for them. Downy serviceberry, plum and cherry trees, lowbush blueberry, highbush blueberry, lead plant, New Jersey tea, Carolina rose, swamp rose, white meadow sweet, American basswood, people bush. Potted geranium, cream wild indigo, wild lupin, common spiderwort, anise hyssop, that's a really big one for bumblebees, white wild indigo, purple prairie clover, another favorite for bumblebees, pale purple coneflower, wild bergamot, prairie spiderwort, pulver's root, butterfly milkweed, Plotted joe pieweed, purple joe pieweed, woodland sunflower, fairy sunflower, fairy blazing star, great blue lobelia, Potted bee balm, redell's goldenrod, stiff goldenrod, rough blazing star, snowy goldenrod, blue blue aster, new england aster. And I forgot to mention that that list is from flowering bloom time. And then just to mention some non-native plants, well, that's a particularly good one for early spring when there's not a lot else flowering. So once again, for the bumblebee queens and the other species that are out really early in the season, blanket flower, cleome, sunflowers, magnolias, rhododendron, Russian sage, steeplebush and meadowsweet, cosmos, many herbs, and actually lots of things in the lamiaceae family, such as basil, orange, catnip lavender, spearmint, oregano, and rosemary. So providing flowering plants as food for pollinators is really only providing half of what they need. The other half is nesting sites, and that's probably even more important than the food source because it's hard to find. So nesting sites can be provided in the garden habitat as well. The majority of bees nest underground. So you obviously want to avoid using landscaping cloth because they can't dig through that. And also don't mulch all areas. They can't get through the mulch either. So if you can leave unmulched areas. And most of the rest that don't nest underground, nest in hollow cavities or grass tussocks, sometimes piles of debris or in hollowed out twigs and stems. And gardeners will be happy to hear this advice, don't keep the yard too tidy, so leaving piles of plant debris, things like that can provide nesting habitat for the bees. And especially for people who have a little bit more land, leave standing dead trees if possible because bees will nest in that as well. If you can leave some dead plant stems, or if you're cutting back pithy or hollow stem plants, leave some of that stem on the bush. For example, if you're cutting a raspberry bush, you can leave maybe six to eight inches of stem on the ones that you're cutting back. And that's particularly good for small carpenter bees and yellow-faced bees. They're both really small bees that may nest in those. And when I first heard a bee researcher mention that, I went out to my raspberry bushes, and I saw a broken stem. I cut it off. I popped it open, and there were larvae in it. And I actually have a picture of that on page four of that extension sheet. So it's more common than you would expect. Whatever you do cut off that has pithy or hollow stems, you can leave on the property somewhere for bees to use rather than composting it. So preferably up off the ground a little bit so it can avoid getting rain splashed into. And also you can provide nesting habitat by either bundling stems or cutting bamboo stakes and bunching them together or drilling holes in logs. And I have details of that in the extension sheet. But there's only been one research study done on these artificial nests and they found uh, higher predation and higher disease rates, and that's not totally unexpected because obviously you're artificially grouping all these bees together, and so predators are going to find them more easily and disease is going to spread more quickly. So providing natural habitat is really the best approach. So one thing I get asked often is, well, if I'm attracting all these bees, aren't I going to get stung? So I worked either around or directly with bees for a lot of years doing research. And I can actually count on one hand the number of times I've been stung. So most people, when they're talking about bees stinging them, are usually mistaking wasps for bees, in particular paper wasps and hornets. In Wisconsin here, we have 400 identified species of bees, likely a lot more that haven't been identified. And the vast majority of those are solitary. So the social bees, like the honeybees and the bumblebees, will defend their nest, and they will sing, and at times on mass. But solitary bees just live life as one solitary individual. Their only interaction with other bees is to mate. They don't have a large nest, so they've not evolved to aggressively defend their nest. So they often even just have weak or no longer functional singers. And if you do get stung by one, it's only going to be one single bee singing you. So this really common fear of being stung by bees is really out of proportion to the likelihood of actually getting stung. And just a side note, just like bees, the vast majority of wasps are solitary, but of course it's the social ones that we're the most familiar with because they will aggressively defend their nest and sting. And that's pretty much what I have. I wanted to kind of just mention a few of the best resources on the subject. Vercy Society website, that's xerces.org. And they have an excellent book called Attracting Native Pollinators. gives all kinds of good general information, flowering plant information, not only for bees but for butterflies. And then also a book called Pollinators of Native Plants by Heather Holm, which is really good. And with that, I can take questions.
6: Hi, this is Kristen. I have a question. So I was out in my yard yesterday, and I noticed that I have one area of my yard where I have St. John's wort, and there are all bumblebees on those, and there are just tons of them, and then just maybe like eight feet away was butterfly weed, and there are only honey bees on that. Is that a function of the flower type, or do bees tend not to forage in the same areas?
10: No, they definitely will forage in the same area, so that probably is flower type. And yeah, I actually don't recall ever seeing bumblebees on butterfly weed. I see a lot of smaller bees. In fact, I mostly see sweat bees and small carpenter bees. And that's likely has to do with tongue size. And the St. John's wort is a really big bumblebee attractor. But also, if you look, because the flowers open, pollen is accessible to anybody. So you will also see a lot of really small bees on those as well.
6: Are there any types of pollinators that are in conflict, like if you're trying to attract one to your yard, it's going to kind of prohibit a different kind?
10: No. The only thing where I could even say is remotely like that is invasive species in Wisconsin called Amphidium manicatum will carder bee, And the males with those are very territorial, but it will only be over a small area. So they'll find a bush. They particularly like lambs here that they will defend and so what they're doing is they're waiting for a female to come and get a chance to mate with her and the females of the species collect the hairs and that's what they line their nest cells with so they come to the plant and then the male will mate with them but the male very aggressively defends that area so anything that comes in honeybees, fly, whatever else, it goes after it and attacks it and it has prongs on the end of its abdomen so it can curl over and crunch those insects. So it can kill some insects, but that's just going to be within a small location. So in general, no, there's nothing that you could have that would prohibit other pollinators for coming in.
5: Okay, thank you. This Barb in Kenosha, we have people who are interested in native vars, the cultivars of native plants, just because sometimes they're a little more garden-friendly, especially for smaller landscapes. How about impact on pollinators with those? Are they fairly equivalent to the natives and better than non-native plants? Any comments on the use of native bars for pollinators?
10: Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be on a case-to-case basis. So unlikely that they would be better, but possible some selection could have increased the pollinator nectar. But i never heard of that, but it could happen. Yeah, it's going to be on a case-to-case basis, so it just depends on what the selection did to the plant. Like cone flowers, there's just all kinds of different colors of cone flowers that could affect whether pollinators visit them, and the other ones as well, it just depends on what happened to the plant, because obviously when people are selecting for these things, generally stuff like that, it's just for prettiness of the plant, or sure, it could be disease resistance or something, but people don't care what happens to the pollen or the nectar, so things can happen and, and decrease.
5: We might not be able to make this kind of a general statement, but if physically the closer it is to the native plant, would that be more likely or a better recommendation? Of course, the breeding may affect the amount of pollen or nectar that would be available that we wouldn't even know that.
10: Yeah, I probably agree that the closer it looks to the native, the more likely it's okay. And the best thing really is to just go out and look and see our pollinators visiting it. Okay, thank you.
3: Hey, Christy. This is Christy from Walworth County. Just a question maybe to what you feel like. I know a lot of people have been talking about these bee hotels since they kind of hit the internet. I know you mentioned that the natural habitat, of course, is better. Do you have any insight on those bee hotel things that people are starting to build?
10: Yeah, that's exactly what was being studied in that research site. There's only been one research study on this, so it's not a definite thing that they're always going to be a problem, but that's what they were looking at and they found higher predation, higher disease levels, and I believe they also found higher levels of non-native bees. So, they may not be ideal But the thing is, if people are taking good care of them, and what I mean by that is they need to be disinfected about every two years, either disinfected or you can insert paper straws in them and then just remove those and throw them away. But disease can really build up otherwise if people aren't taking care of them. So it can increase the bee population in a small local area. And really, though, I think that people feel that even if there is more diseases and predation, It really is a good educational thing for people. It's really fun. I had one at my house. Well, I had several at my house. Just going out and watching the bees and watching them come in, it's just really fascinating. So so it does have some good benefits. Probably it's not really doing anything that much for the population of bees. Maybe a little bit locally it could be increasing them.
3: All right, thank you so much, because we had a school that approached me about building them, and so the educational part
10: is what we were kind of focusing on. So Yeah, yeah, definitely think it's a positive thing for education.
1: Where would you place a bee hotel, sunny, shade, or? Um, you know, you want
10: to place them so that they get early morning sun and shade in the afternoon. In the hotels like those, mostly what you're going to get are leafcutter bees. Those are the ones I was talking about that go collect leaf pieces and then line their nest with them. So that's really fun. When I had a log with some holes drilled out in my yard and I could actually follow the female from her nesting site in the log to the plant because I was looking at all my plants around the yard and I saw on my fireweed the circular holes in it. So I knew they were going to that. So I would run and go to the plant and wait, see the female come there watch her cut off the piece and then I'd run back to the log nest and then watch her come in with a piece of leaf and go into that. So that's pretty cool. And then mason bees are another one you really get in those a lot too. And so they line their nest cells with mud. So that can be fun to watch too. I only got just a handful of those in my yard. It just all depends on the location that you got things set up at. And then I also got, not in that type of hotel, but when I use cup plants, that's one of the stems you can use, cut them off and I've got not only some of those bees, but I actually got several yellow-faced bees, which I've never read anything about people getting the yellow-faced bees in those, but I got quite a few, and those bees are pretty cool. The reason I knew I had those in there is for all these bees to know what's in there, well, either you watch the bee go in, or you look at it once they've filled that hole up, they plug it with whatever they use to line the cell. So if you see it's plugged with leaf pieces, well, then you know you've got leaf-cutter bees. If you see it's plugged with mud, you've got... Mason bees, or it could be a wasp as well. Um, solitary wasp will use those holes as well. But on my cup plant, I saw this shiny stuff on the end, and I knew that was a collated bee. Colleted bees line their nest with secretions. They're actually called cellophane bees, so it's kind of like this cellophane-like stuff. So that was pretty fun to, to look at that.
1: Well, how high off the ground should the nest be placed?
10: They only need to be high enough that you're not going to get rain splashed in them. So you can put them up high, down lowest, as long as you're not going to get rain splashed. It uh, doesn't really matter. Building an overhanging roof on the hotel is good, or you could stick them under something where there's kind of a roof over them. Thank you. Sure. Oh, and there are details on building those in that extension sheet. Supporting native bees are essential pollinators. If you're doing stems, you got to make sure they're of a correct length. If you build the stems too short, You'll still get bees nesting in them, but what happens is bees can choose the sex of the egg that they lay, and so they lay female eggs towards the back, male eggs towards the front, presumably because the female eggs are more valuable, so if the nest is going to get predators going in, they're going to come in from the front and get those male eggs. So what happens if you do them too short is they just lay all males, and If you're trying to increase pollinators around your yard, males don't do as much pollination because males only go to feed themselves, so they still do a little bit of pollination. But the females are feeding not only themselves but the offspring, and so they're visiting way, way more flowers than the males are.
5: I know the focus is on the native bees for pollinators, but what about the wasps? Are there any of those that are fairly good pollinators?
10: Yep. There are, and definitely not as much. These are definitely a more important pollinator for most plants and by far for most crop plants. But, yeah, wasps do some pollination, especially in the tropics. I think they're the only pollinator of the fig plants. They're very specific for that. But, yeah, our wasps here do some pollination. They're not as good of pollinators for a couple of reasons. One, they tend not to be as hairy. You'll definitely see some hairy wasps. I've seen some going to visit my spotted bee balm loaded with pollen. But overall, they tend not to be as hairy. So they're not going to carry as much pollen with them. And then secondly, they're not going to visit as many flowers. So bees are not only feeding themselves on pollen and nectar, but they're feeding their offspring on pollen and nectar. The wasps are feeding themselves on nectar, so that's why they're visiting flowers. But then they're feeding their offspring, insects, and other creatures. So they're not visiting as many flowers as bees.
5: Thanks. Really interesting. Any other questions
0: for Christy? Okay, I want to thank Christy for her presentation and for answering all those very good questions. And I would like to see if there are any announcements folks have. I guess I'd like to announce that Farm Tech Days is coming up almost exactly a month from today. So hopefully I will see some of you there. Anybody else have any other announcements?
4: This is Vijay from Brown County. Our Master Gardeners are hosting a Garden Field Day on August 12th. It's a a half-a-day field day, and we have five state specialists here. So if anyone interested, they can visit our Brown County Extension website.
0: Any other announcements? I guess I have one other one. There is a cut flower growers are going to be meeting in Madison October 4th through the 6th. Sheraton Hotel. So if you're interested in cut flower production, Roy Clem is going to be there. Our own Brian Huddleston is going to be there. PJ is going to be there. And there's also going to be a tour. www.ascfg.org is the website. Any other announcements? Okay. If not, then I want to thank everybody for participating today. And next week on the 31st, Kevin Chesso will be our host, and Amanda Gevins and Russ Groves will be our guests with a late-season vegetable update. Thanks, everybody.